Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. I enjoyed speaking to film writer Brian Raftery, and I think you're going to enjoy our conversation about the rise of the erotic thriller and then the rain, Sharon Stone crotch reveals and all, and then the demise of the erotic thriller. Real quick before we get into that, a quick order of business. I've heard from a number of people, four, five, six people, who say they abruptly stopped getting Patreon content from me and assumed I'd stop posting it. I can assure you that is very much not the case. I'm still putting up two to three Patreon-exclusive pods every single week. So if you stop getting stuff, take a look. I, I, from what I gather, it's fairly easily resolved. If you uh, go fiddling around a little bit on Patreon, let me know if I can assist with that in any way. For the rest of you, if you haven't signed up yet, come join us. The water's fine. Music pods, dad jokes, and more. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hey, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California. Boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today from the other side of the Hollywood sign, a journalist and writer with a focus on film, most importantly for our present purposes. He recently posted a piece on The Ringer entitled The Rise and Fall of the Erotic Thriller. Hello and welcome, Brian Raftery. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for 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 joining me. I was so excited. I emailed you almost as soon as I saw that your um your article had been posted. I you typically go there for my uh, NBA geekdom, but this was even more exciting to me than um the uh, the play in tournament. I need to, <laughs> I need to know. Describe the circumstances under which you approach your bosses, including, well, I know you probably don't work full-time for The Ringer, but you approach the bosses at The Ringer, including, I'm assuming, Bill Simmons, and you say, I want you to pay me to rewatch <laughs> not just the first Poison Ivy movie. I'm, I'm Alyssa Milano, <laughs> Jamie Presley, the gamut. Well, to clarify, I did not get to the Jamie Presley point. That's Poison Ivy 3, I think. Is that Ivy's Revenge? Am I remembering that right? Or that's why do I have that knowledge yet? I can't. Hey, I, I Wikipedia did this morning. I don't know what your excuse is. <laughs> um, I did. I don't pitch my stories to Bill, but I did go to the ringer and say, you know, um, there was two things going on. One is the 30th anniversary of Basic Instinct, which is still um, as someone who was 16 when that movie came out. That felt like a seismic kind of cultural event. Um, and then also this kind of weird boondoggle of a movie, which I still have not been able to see, called Deep Water, uh, which we knew was coming out. These Ben Affleck, Ana de Armas uh, erotic thriller that got delayed for years and wound up on Hulu. And the only reason why I haven't seen it is because my kids have been home for spring break and I can't watch Ben Affleck erotic thrillers <laughs> while my kids are home. Um, they're much more than Matt Damon erotic thrillers. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, you know, it's one of those things where I do like doing these kind of look back stories and it seemed like there was a lot of nostalgia on Twitter and among film kind of lovers of a certain age, you would see these tweets like, Oh, why don't we make these kind of movies anymore? What happened to disclosure? What happened to the hand that rocks the cradle? What happened to, you know, basic instincts and fatal attraction? So, yeah, the whole idea was to sort of dive into what these movies meant, kind of 
sort of go through the big ones and talk to the people who worked on them and kind of figure out why they blew up when they did and, and what happened to them. So, yeah, the role that I mean, I think there are probably some people who are excited for me when they see the title of this um, podcast going up and then other people are like, oh, my God, he's going to talk about erotic thrillers again. I can't <laughs> believe how many times is this guy going to do this to us? Um, so the role, yeah, the role that the erotic thriller has played in our culture is a subject I've thought about way too much, but we'll get into that shortly. First, I want to ask you a question that um, that ties into a book you published a couple of years back entitled Best Movie Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Just looking at the table of contents, well, it, you know, I know it's a couple of years now. You probably weren't pre pre prepared to talk about it off the bat. What, what Remind us all, what are some of the big movies that made 1999 the year that it was in terms of film? It's kind of a crazy list. Uh, I mean, you can go, you can start with The Matrix, you can start with Fight Club, you can start with Office Space, you can get The Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense, Election, Three Kings, Being John Malkovich, Boys Don't Cry. That's just kind of the starter kit. Um, and then you get deeper and deeper down that list and you have, you know, Talented Mr. Ripley, you have uh, Deep Blue Sea, which is one of the last big studio made original monster movies that's like a super fun $70 million B movie. Um, so the whole the whole point of that book was and we have a very big movie in there that whether or not it's an erotic thriller is actually something I thought about a lot, which is the year of Eyes Wide Shut. Um, it's the year that Tom Cruise made both Eyes Wide Shut and or and Magnolia. He released both those movies in '99. I think he spent 14 years making Eyes Wide Shut. Um, so that year was always kind of fascinating to me because it's a really interesting mix of first of all just great movies that everyone's seen. But also you have all these new filmmakers making their first movies like Spike Jones and Sofia Coppola. You have Stanley Kubrick making his last movie. You have George Lucas. He made this tiny little uh, doc, you know, sort of travelogue called Star Wars The Phantom Menace that year. It was his first movie in, like, that he directed in more than a decade. Um, and all those movies came out during the year of Y2K. So they came out during this very transformational time where we were all – we had the luxury of doing some navel-gazing before the – the aughts began and much more important things started happening in the world that we had to pay attention to. That's um, right. So it was a very, yeah, it's a crazy year. It's a crazy year in a lot of ways, but especially for movies. Yeah, I've heard the um, the Clinton years described retroactively as a comic interlude between the Cold War <laughs> and the 2000s yeah. and everything that's <laughs> yeah, followed since. Yeah, comic interlude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How much attention we were able to uh, devote to a, a, a dress, basically. Yes, yeah. So here's my question in light of this book that you've written about the indubitably undisputably significant mainstream cinematic year of 1999 i asked a friend i hate to be this guy but i'm just but i don't actually don't hate to be this guy i asked a friend a week ago who's a movie buff to name a movie from 2021 that people will generally regard as if not a classic at least something we can all agree was good and rewatchable for mm -hmm. years and years to come i will I'll tell you his answer in a second. What comes to mind for you as a movie that will resonate in the culture? We all agree that's a good movie. Well, in resonating in the culture is tough. I mean, there were a lot of movies that resonated for me. I do think Dune making $100 million and being this six Oscar winning kind of, it's not on the scale of Lord of the Rings in terms of success, but that was kind of a, a kind of traditional old fashioned, like here is a big Hollywood movie, a big franchise film, but made by someone who came up from the art world you know more art smaller art films and built his way up i do think that movie will still be kind of talked about and watched 10 15 years from now by a lot of people i just think partly because they're gonna make a sequel <laughs> partly because you know it stars one of the youngest under 25 actors at this point with zendaya it's like it's she has a huge following she's great timothy chalamet has a following 
there are other movies that I think for the people who saw them, I think Worst Person in the World will resonate. I've seen that twice in the theaters. It's a fantastic movie. I think Licorice Pizza for certain people will still be talked about or argued about. Um, you know, and there were a lot of smaller films I saw that were great. I do think that the uh, the era of like here is the mainstream movie that's also insanely good, that's instantly quotable, that everyone recognizes, that becomes part of the culture in a big way, is increasingly rare. And I think you have to go back to almost get out at this point to find a movie that from the get-go felt like it was puncturing more than just that I'm going to go see a movie this weekend itch. It was just, it, everyone talked about it. Everyone knows what the sunken place is. Everyone knows that I would have voted three times. I mean, that movie just really kind of conquered the culture in a way that's very hard for movies to do at this point. Yeah, you know, honestly, I can tell when that happens now, and it's an imprecise science, I'm sure, both on my part and the part of the writer, when I'm reading The Ringer and other sites like The Ringer, like I had heard about Ted Lasso, and when Ted Lasso started to be referenced in sports articles, I said, okay, er that means everybody's watching this. And you're right, yeah. Get Out is is kind of the last movie that seems like it, it meets that criteria. What is... What is driving that phenomenon? Now, it's obviously the fact that we have splintered audiences is is a big part of that. But I do it. It, it feels like the things that um, that managed to pop into the society to the extent that anything can to society as a whole nowadays, it is television. Hmm. Um, and, and there's no shortage of, there's no shortage of talent, obviously, because I don't know if we're at the tail end of peak TV, but we're somewhere in the story of, of peak TV is it, like, okay, I understand why cinematic movies, the, the things that are driving the decision-making about what gets greenlit at a cinematic level, but why should it be that, um, HBO has more success making a limited run series like Game of Thrones that becomes a cultural obsession, but can't seem to make movies that become similar cultural obsessions. What is it about the runtime? I think about this a lot. I don't, I mean, and we're in a very weird place now because this feels like the last couple of weeks or months there has, there's this sort of slight quiet pushback to this idea that we're now seeing a lot of miniseries that frankly should should be two-hour movies and in the 90s or early aughts would have been a two-hour movie. Um, and I've watched really good miniseries. I actually was just recommending a miniseries to a friend today and I was like, it's six hours, it's really good. You know, in 19, it would have been like a great two-hour thriller in 1997, like trying to give a shorthand for it. Um, and I mean, there's 5 million ways that our metabolisms have just changed. I mean, the fact is TVs, everyone talks about TV getting good, but TVs got really good. Like you can basically buy like a really nice size TV for not a relatively huge amount of money at this point. You can get a sound bar for like 60 bucks. That sounds better than anything I had growing up ever watching TV. Um, and you can stream stuff and it's run from $6 a month to $15 a month for some services. You don't have to deal with someone sitting, you know, texting next to you. You don't have to go at a certain time to watch a movie, which even if someone like me, I go to at least 50, 60 movies a year. Like I still, sometimes I'm like, Oh, three ten. Why does it three ten? Like I'm free at one o'clock. Why can't this just be on at one o'clock? So that is a big problem, but also it's just the economics of it. I mean, if you want to get uh, lots of people to see your very expensive movie, it has to be the kind of very expensive movie that people traditionally see, and those are frequently uh, big franchise movies. And I am talking to you in an office that's surrounded by Marvel Comics stuff. I, I have a Howard the Duck collection right here. Like, I love my comic books. I, like a lot of people, I'm sort of like, is this all we have at this point? Like, is this going to be the main opening weekend is going to be always comic books all the time, always superheroes. Um, 
but yeah, it might just be, it might just be how the studios kind of burn themselves out on film. Um, so I don't, I don't know how that shift happened. It happened. It feels like it happened overnight, but in a way it's been happening for 10, 15 years and you'll never have a year like 1999 again, because in 1999 you would go into work on Monday and someone's like, yo, I just saw this movie, the sixth sense. You've got to go see it right now. And you're like, I've got nothing else to do. The Sopranos is on TV, but that season's over. It's not coming. There's not going to be a good TV show for six more months. I'll go see this movie right now. And you just, that's just never going to happen again. There's, just, there's always a million things to do. I want to see if I understand what you just said. You talked about this maybe how the studios burn themselves out. Do you mean that until they can no longer find viable um, properties to make superhero movies out of, or do you mean literally that the studio system has entered its end game and that the, the superhero movies, the death knell? I don't know if it's a death knell. I think there is something, you know, I look at a studio like Paramount and I think how long until Netflix buys Paramount? You know sure. what I mean? Right. I mean, these are all, you know, I drive by the Warner Brothers a lot, a lot, because I live in Burbank, and I kind of love that. I grew up in a town where there was nothing related to the movie industry at all, and I love the fact it's like I'm a dopey, I moved to L.A. in my 40s, which is the best time to do it, because I'm like, I don't, I'm not here to make it big. I'm just happy to be around the movie industry. Know, it's but really, think, it's really huh. cool. It's really cool when you yeah, drive past the cool. set to Mr. Deeds on, you yeah, know, sure. and in yeah, Washington. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things, but I look at it, and I'm like, you know, Warner Brothers just got out of this really bungled kind of merger and they're entering another merger. And how long until someone just says, how long until TikTok just buys Warner Brothers? You know, I mean, these things are crazy. But three years from now, someone might be playing this clip and be like, here's this moron who predicted TikTok by Warner Brothers three years ago. And, you know, it'll be a big viral signal boost for both of us. It'll be great. That's right. I'll make, it, I'll, I'll make a note of this just in case, yes. Brian. Yeah, yeah. Um, you could change the whole title to TikTok's going to buy Warner Brothers exclusively. <laughs> um, but I just, I don't know how the, the studios seem to be in this hole where they have to spend gazillions to make back hopefully another gazillion or two. And I don't know how long that can last. It's just, it feels like a peak everything. It feels like peak capitalism, peak creative kind of deficiency. I, I don't know what it is, but they, they just can't seem to figure out how to make a movie for 40 to 50 million dollars. I mean, The Lost City did really well, which is very encouraging because um, it's not based on anything really except the screenplay. But I don't know how often, you know, we used to get movies like that every week for years and years and years. That's right. And I, I want to talk to you about the erotic thrillers, but segueing off of that, you also just put an article on um, EW. Okay. Did, did, was your article in, did I understand you correctly, the final print edition of Entertainment Weekly? It was, which is crazy. They asked me eight months ago, they were, really almost six to eight months ago, like, do you want to do a story where it, basically the whole story was we want to do a thing about the future of pop culture. So you're going to talk to as many people as you can about what 2032 will be like. And I was like, great, this is fun. I've, I worked at EW early in my career. I have a lot of fondness for it. I have a lot of friends from there. I hadn't written anything for them in like 15 years. It's like, oh, this will be fun. And then a story about the future of entertainment wound up just being in the last, sadly, the last print issue of EW ever, which is such a weird it was completely unintended uh irony to that um, so you were in print you have a, a long history in print you've now been in digital i'm sure for a long time has the feeling of a story going live online managed to finally replace the feeling of going to a newsstand and picking up a copy of a, a, a magazine and seeing your byline and seeing your words in physical print Oh, that's really interesting. I don't know. You know, it happens. It's so I, I was kind of delighted to go out and and get this issue on the newsstand. But I think that was partly just because I, you know, like I said, my first job out of college was at Entertainment Weekly. I loved it there. It was really a super fun job. And I have a lot of fondness for what that place did for me. So I think that was especially like, oh, look, my name's on this. But I don't I don't I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if I did a cover story for 
any of the new, any of the magazines that I did cover stories for that now literally no longer exist. It's like that would be a really kind of thrilling thing. And I don't I'm not someone with a huge ego about this. Like I'm very I, I am my parents are both journalists. There's no glamour in the industry for me. It's like it's just yeah, you write this thing. No one's going to read your byline. They're going to read the story. Um, but that was a lot of fun. I don't know if posting a story live has quite the same thrill as that. But I also I don't need that thrill so much anymore. You know what I mean? Like I, I think in my I, I think in my twenties and thirties it was a lot more thrilling because I was probably far more egomaniacal. <laughs> I see. So about the article itself, what Hollywood entertainment is likely to look like in twenty thirty two. Understandably, a lot of that focused on technology. That's maybe a little bit easier to predict than where the culture is going to yeah. be and and the culture is going to drive the content. But you've already touched on this. You must have had conversations with people about the future of non pre-existing intellectual property um you know non-existing franchises did you get any sense that people see i don't want to say a light at the end of the tunnel there's nothing wrong with the the theater is ideally well suited to big explosions and intergalactic battles and the tv in my house is pretty good for paul rudd movies like i get that right (laughs) but but did you get a sense that people could see um a horizon where the movie industry as we have known it traditionally could transition back or is it just past the point of no return according to the people you spoke to i don't think anyone said it's past the point of return i don't think anyone said it's definitely going to happen because i think people do have to be cautious about this because no one wants to look like a moron 10 years 10 years from now but i do think the most kind of honest answer i got was from M. Night Shyamalan, who is someone who's managed to still stake out this kind of strange, like this kind of now very rare, stu- he gets studio money, you know, or he gets backing. He makes these sort of relatively low budget movies that get released by big studios and do well. And they're always original. They're always, you know, for better or worse, they're always an M. Night story. I, I love his movies, even when I don't like them. Like, I just think they're always so original. And you're just like, no one else would do this. Like, they're always, you know. They're always kind of nutty and fun in their own way. He's he's, he's a like, modern he's a modern auteur in the Hollywood studio system. So yeah, credit where credit's very, due. Yeah, and there's very few of them left who. Yeah, like you said, I mean, like I think Universal is really trying. And Jordan Peele is clearly like Universal is kind of treating him the way Universal treated Spielberg in the '70s, where they're like, "This is our guy. We are really going to bank on him and and and, and back him." Um, but I think you know, Ed Knight's like, of course, there's going to still be original stories, and maybe that's him saying. You know, his own, he's very personally invested in that happening. Sure. So maybe that's why. But I think he does have a lot of faith and he's seen a lot of cycles in the industry. And the fact is, I, I'm not trying to plug a four year old book about 1999, but one of the reasons why that year happened is because by the mid 90s, the studios, even the studio executives were like, what are we doing? Like, we are just making garbage. I mean, the, the number of sequels people have forgotten about in the 90s, like, the odd couple too, like stuff like that, where it's like, that's what they were making. They were making really cruddy stuff. And yeah, now they're on a boat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, or yeah, or, yeah, speed two on a cruise control. Another, another on a boat sequel from the nineties. I think the fact is that generation, even the executives who are there to make money are like, you know, we came up during the seventies. Can't we do better than this? You know? And I think that's what kind of spur and the audience is like, we're sick of this. You know, it's so it's kind of on the audience at this point to show up, you know, it, I don't want to say, I hate when there's a really good movie out and people on Twitter are like, you should show up and support this. It's like, I don't want to go and support something. I want to go see a story and have a good time. And, and I, don't need, I don't need the like Make-A-Wish Foundation movie-going aspect of it. But I do think it's, you know, there are times where um, I will call a friend and I'm like, I just saw a really great, cool, interesting movie in the theater. And they're like, oh, cool. Is it on streaming yet? And I'm like, oh, no, just like, 
you'll really enjoy it in the theater. Like, it'll be so much more fun. Like, trust me, you won't be interrupted by your kids or by a bathroom break or whatever, you know? So I don't know. I have, I have, I'm optimistic about that, but I think we're all optimistic in some ways about things we want to happen. So <laughs> I would like to think that there is a little bit of a light of the tunnel. And I say that again, as someone who very much enjoys a lot of these big franchise movies as well. Like, I am not a snob about it. I enjoy them. They're fun. A good, a good comic movie is super, super satisfying, you know? Um, well, yeah, I wish there were fewer of them sometimes. Sure. Well, one alternative to the superhero movies is um, foreign language entertainment and, uh, you know, things that are made with an international point of view. I was always curious about this as a kid because I was aware that America was exported culture and that people yeah. were, were were willing to watch American actors with subtitles or or dubbed. And, and then economically, you could see the, the wind shifting and, OK, China is going to become the dominant economy of the 21st century. And I'm like, is there going to come a time where American kids feel normal going to watch a, a, a Chinese movie with Chinese actors made for a Chinese audience, probably strictly because they had five times the budget of what Hollywood could hope to mm. spend? And I couldn't culturally, I'm like, we're just too isolated. The fact that we're, you know, not even attached to to Europe. I don't think that could ever happen. I've been very surprised, frankly, to to see something like um, like Squid Game, which to me felt like uh, it wasn't the, oh, it's this artsy thing that people want to pat themselves on the back and say, oh, I get this foreign language thing. I'm, I'm the kind of person who reads subtitles. It felt like popcorn entertainment for a mainstream audience. Again, in the people that, you, in your own opinion, but the people you spoke to for this Entertainment Weekly article, do you feel a lot of confidence that there will be, that will be a staple of the American media movie diet moving forward, watching foreign content? I think so. This might be me, my own optimism. Again, I think I uh, it makes me so happy. As someone who worked in a video store in the 90s and would have people come back returning a tape and saying, this has words written on the bottom of it, being like, yeah, they're called subtitles. Like, it's, you know, it's... <laughs> It's a movie. It's from Japan. It's, you know, I, I am so happy that clearly people who are I don't hang out with a lot of teens or 20 something. But like clearly that generation has like no hang ups like right. this stuff. They're very open minded. Culture is culture. It doesn't in a lot of ways. It doesn't matter where it came from or when it came from. You know, it's like you can things just kind of pop up now from any point in the last 60 years. I certainly think that, um, you know, I, and even something like The Worst Person in the World, which is a Norwegian film, which has made almost three million dollars in the U.S., which is pretty great at this point for like, even, even with two Oscar nominations, that's, that's a really good amount of money to make. And I, I, I think people, I think subtitles used to be a weird hangup. I, my kids watch stuff with subtitles on even the, just English language stuff because it helps them. They just like to follow along better. So I think people are totally open to it. I don't, I think, you know, you look at what's going on in pop music and the world global influences there. I mean, when I, I love music and when I used to go to record stores in the nineties, there was always like a global section, a world music section. And, it was always kind of like in the corner and it was like dusty. And then you're like, what is that music? I'm, I'm never going to hear it on the radio. And now it's like I can go on Bandcamp and there's like Brazilian punk bands that I'm like, oh, my God, if I had heard this when I was 17 years old, I would have moved to Brazil. This is so cool. Um, so I love that. I think that's absolutely the way it's going. And I think, you know, I, I do think it's it's hokey to point to Parasite, but Parasite winning Best Picture, the fact that the people who saw that movie and just saw what's already a really dark, screwed up movie in a wonderful way. But the fact that so many people are willing to kind of go see a, a foreign language film, I, I, I love that because uh, I, I think that's, and that's, as I get more and more into older movies now, I'm much more excited about seeing all the foreign language films that I missed growing up, either because they weren't available or because maybe I wasn't as open to them or it was just, just you know, it's hard to find. 
Okay, moving on to... You're right, by the way. Music has been absolutely leading the charge. I, sh- I should have yeah. thought of that. Yeah, if it can happen in music, of course it can happen in, in film. I think that's a really that's a really promising indicator in that regard. I, I think mu- it's weird. With the, when it comes to the internet, I think music and pornography are, are early adapters of everything. Because when I think about music, like once, stream, once Napster started, and you could instantly get foreign language music from anywhere... Whereas before I used to, you know, fly to London to get like a Japanese import of a British or like a, a British import of a Japanese album or something like that or ordered online from a crazy place. I think 20 years ago, people started discovering more foreign language music. And I think that's just become now natural and something like Bandcamp or Spotify where you're just like, I want to hear German, like I want to hear German techno or something. It's just like, it's just there. It's fantastic. But it's, and now I think movies and TV are catching up to that same kind of like, oh, people are open to they don't need everything to be in English. They don't need everything to be from their culture necessarily, which is great. Right. Well, and the, the conditions are right because there are so many, um, so many content providers, content peddlers that are yeah. desperately trying to, uh, you know, I, I, I just got my free trial of Peacock the other day. So I'm like yeah. going through Peacock and it's like, is this going to be either how NBC survived or is this going to be this thing where some CEO loses their job because they had no choice but to dump $600 million into Peacock. <laughs> and it was, it was, there are so many people who so desperately need to sell content. They're going to give foreign content that somebody else has already funded to be made yeah. every opportunity to succeed. So the conditions yeah. are ripe in that regard. Okay. Now for the real reason I brought you here, this piece <laughs> from the ringer, the rise and fall of the erotic thriller, the title itself raises a really, really good point. Most movie genres are stable. There's comedy, there's drama, there's sci-fi, there's Westerns, but in the lifetime of probably everybody who will ever listen to this first, there was no erotic thriller. And then not only did it exist, it was as big as any other genre, Basic Instinct, of course, being the zenith of that. And then, as you point out in the article, it essentially disappeared. And the question is, is it gone for good or is it... I mean, can you think of another genre that has had that trajectory? I mean, I think there was, you know, there was sort of a... I I did a thing for The Ringer that was very similar to this story last year about 90s film noir and how... I mean, film noir tends to cycle back every few decades and it still kind of exists in some ways, but that also kind of dropped out in the early odds. But I mean, there are certainly, um, you know, I can't think of a genre that's gone, that's disappeared the in, with such a degree that the erotic thriller did considering how big it was. I mean, there's also, there are definitely other eighties thrillers. Like I do sort of miss the broadcast news kind of like terms of endearment, like the grown up smart comedy slash drama, which I think now has fully I think Sundance kind of killed that because it kind of created these kind of mawkish indie dramas. But I also think TV just kind of occupies that space more. Yes. Um, but yeah, like stuff like Jerry Maguire, where you're like, this is something that like you would go to see as a teenager to understand how adults lived. Yes. Those kind of movies. Are, and those were studio made, huge stars, often made hundreds of millions of dollars. Those are kind of gone. But the erotic thriller, just considering how big they were and just like how important they were to the industry. I worked, I guess, again, I worked at a video store in the 90s. These things rented like crazy. Yes, they did. The most reliable. I mean, your inventory is like if you had, if you had fatal traction and you lived in an area with uh, sad suburban dads and horny teenagers, like that movie rented like every every weekend, you know? So you trace the origin, uh, the origin of the genre as a mainstream phenomenon to Zalman King, who people may not know his name. They may recall if you're. Uh, a, a young, were a young man of a certain age in the 90s may, re- may remember the Red Shoe Diaries um, his so he, I didn't realize he made that along with his partner I don't know if it was his wife or his girlfriend at the yes, time his wife, yeah. their daughter 
recalls nine and a half weeks, which is his breakthrough success, as her parents' labor of love throughout her childhood, which yeah. is an odd thing for any human being to be able to say. As long as I can remember, my parents were working jointly on developing an erotic thriller. Yeah, I mean, they, I think he optioned that book. That book came out in the late 70s. So I think he optioned that when it came out. I don't know the exact timeline. But yeah, and, and Adrian Lyne, who did Deep Water, wound up directing it. But that movie was certainly... You know, you can go back a few years. I mean, obviously, Body Heat and American Gigolo are very, very crucial to the genre. They're also great movies. Um, yeah, Last Tango in Paris. Last Tango in Paris. So that's though that's weird. I didn't know what to do with that because that is feels like much more of a melodrama to me. But yes, it yeah. also I means clearly it's in the same ilk. I think Body Heat was like that perfect, like, oh, we're going to be sexy, but it's also like there's a great bunch of twists in this and adultery and everyone's kind of, you know, screwing each other over. Um, but nine and a half weeks was certainly, you know, and, and Americans did not like nine and a half weeks at all. It took a long time to get released here. And when it did, it was really kind of rejected. And it's one of those amazing things where by the time it finally came out, there was home video and it, it happened to come out just as home video was just, I mean, I think people thought it was peaking in like 87, 88, it would actually get bigger, but it had absolutely exploded at that point. And so that was, you could just rent this and watch it from, you know, in the privacy of your own home. And I think that movie certainly helped prime a lot of people to say, "Ooh, I like these kind of movies." And also, oh, my neighbor watched it too, so maybe it's not completely, you know, maybe it's not completely immoral for me to be watching this. Um, you mention, will you quote Zalman King's daughter again, Chloe King, uh, saying, um, describing the success of of that movie and then the erotic thriller success in its wake? We were in the Reagan era, which was a more puritanical time. Um, you and and she both said because of AIDS, people were frozen up and terrified, right? Both she and it seems like you in the article described the 90s as a time where that sensibility loosened up in the culture. Mm. See, this is where you and I differ on this subject. My, my pet theory on this um, is that the 80s were typified by this like easy cartoon sexuality that's in pop music that's very prevalent in, in hair metal. And they have the phenomenon of the 80s, the tit movie, the, mm. you know, hamburger, the movie or ski school or, or, or what have you. Um, and then the 90s, we have Nirvana and we have people getting ice picks in the face as a consequence of having mm. casual sex on screen. Um, you know, as somebody who was I was a kid in the 80s, then a teen in the 90s, I remember the general paranoia and the dread that you were you had, you know, stuck into you surrounding casual sex i understood the erotic thriller at the time as being well we know that naked breasts in film is a pretty dependable formula but we need to package it in a way mm. that makes sense on a, on a gut level um you know people are have this discomfort with sex outside of committed relationships like to me i'd compare it to we want to see scarface rise right. and sell drugs and kill people but on a gut level it feels wrong if he doesn't suffer the ultimate consequence himself at the end mm. of the film. And that was the big shift from hair metal to Nirvana and from the 80s uh, sex comedy to the 90s erotic thriller. What do you think about that? That's interesting. I mean, you know, one thing that I'm at a disadvantage while talking about this is because I think the 80s kind of the AIDS fear, the the uptightness, I think it was very much more deeply felt by the boomers than people who were in their 30s and 40s at that point. I do think stuff like Ed Meese and the crackdown on pornography, I think in the, which is in the eighties, I think the Reagan era really being anti-pornography. Um, I think a lot of the 
the evangelical movement in the 80s, which really took off in the 70s but blew up in the 80s, which was um, very anti-sex, very homophobic, using AIDS as a, an incredibly cruel um, weapon uh, to kind of lure straight people to be to be homophobic. I think that's more of the climate. I don't want to speak for Chloe, but I think that's what she's speaking of. As for the adults at that point, it felt like a kind of a scary time. And I think like the escapism, like I don't think when you read the Time magazine, Time magazine had fatal attraction on the cover, which is crazy to think that happened. Like a movie could be so big that its movie stars are on the cover. And when you read. Oh, story, I felt it. I was I was I was a child and I yeah. felt that that was like this statement about yeah. culture and the state of American monogamy. That was a, a moment yeah. in the cult, even more than basic instinct, I feel like. Yeah, I think they're both. I mean, they're both crucial movies in this era. I think. I think. I think. Really, I think Basic Instinct is almost a better movie, even though there's a lot of stuff I find kind of deplorable in it. But mm-hmm. um, I think people were, so- were more, more, were more afraid that Fatal Attraction could happen there in their town, and maybe yes, on their yeah. block, and maybe in their house, than they were concerned yes. about Basic Instinct happening to them. Yeah, yeah, and I think Time, you know, Time at that point is the most read magazine in the country, or if not number one or number two, its audience is like. 25 year olds and up and i think that was like the boomer kind of like go-to and i think when you read that story you do get a sense of real kind of fear among um young to middle-aged adults when it comes to sex in that era and i think that coupled with what you know the reagan administration's kind of just completely like sex should not exist like this completely sexless administration especially compared to clinton who's just, who's just like you know i made the joke that he's the horniest president of all time and I don't mean it to be glib because I think that's actually awful in a lot of ways, but there was something in that moment that was a little more like a sigh of relief. Like this guy is not going to be, I mean, you know, Reagan had this Reagan and his crew especially had this feeling. Even as a kid, I was like, these guys look like my priests. Like these guys are stern, angry, middle-aged white guys who don't think anything is good for you. Yeah, Um, that's right. Regardless of what you may have thought about the real nature of Bill and Hillary's relationship behind closed doors, we know that Bill didn't call Hillary mommy. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting, but it's interesting. You know, I, I did this 99 book. And one thing that's interesting is that everyone's perception of the 80s and 90s, they're, no one had They're all different. I mean, they, we, everyone experienced in different ways. And they're either experiences of the culture. They experiences the news at the time. So, yeah, I mean, your points about the 80s versus the 90s are absolutely valid. It's just it's just interesting thing we all do when we look back at cultures. Where we're kind of picking out stuff to kind of build our case. But it's also kind of like. You can't always, you can't ever get over how you felt at the time. Well, I I think, yeah, I think you make a terrific case that generationally it would have felt different. The way, the way that the 80s and 90s transition for a 30 year old is very different from how that felt to a 15 year old. And I think that that sort of might be how, how both of these things can be true at the same time. That might well be the answer right there. Yeah. I I really, though, I do remember when I was 11 or 12, when the 7-Eleven stopped stocking Playboys in the 80s or late 80s. And not because I was actually going to be able to get them but i remember i would see them there and then one day it was like oh we can't have those anymore which i think is one of those things that's burned in my mind is kind of almost like emblematic of that the last couple of years of that decade let's talk about um showgirls for a moment um it was <laughs> in in some ways like this it, it's a milestone in the trajectory of the erotic thriller and again i had um for better and for worse I had a theory about that at the time that I was I was dead wrong about. So you have a former teen starlet. No coincidence. That's who they cast in wall to wall NC-17 sex scenes. And within I thought they were a little closer together. I looked it up this morning within 10 years. Vivid Films has got something that kind of looks like a studio 
on, you know, over on the, on, on Kawanga, and they're making a pirate movie with a reported $8 million budget. I saw, oh, wow. I, yeah, I don't know if you, I, I see you never got around to Stagnetti's Revenge I, Pirates 2. No, but I, I, mean, I worked at the video store, so I, I know what Vivid Video is. I never realized their budgets got that. <laughs> I don't, I mean, you, you got to take everything that Vivid okay. tells you with a grain of salt. Right. But supposedly the first, the first real movie that they made was a million and the sequel was eight million. In any wow. event, I, I felt the, the way that people like Jenna Jameson were being integrated into the society and normalized. And then with Showgirls uh, coming along and going to theaters with the NC-17, I think I remember thinking, okay, somebody's going to come along, a mainstream star, maybe like where Lindsay Lohan was in the culture at a certain point, and a mainstream studio, maybe not a Paramount or whatever, like a Miramax is going to up the ante. We are going to see a mainstream celebrity with a mainstream studio make an X-rated film, and it won't mark the transition of them permanently into adult film. It'll just be sort of our generation's deep mm. throat. The kind of, you know, it's it's oh, pornography for discerning adults. That that did not happen. And that's nowhere. Was I dead wrong about the possibility of that happening in, 2000, in 2003? Or did the culture mm. somehow pull itself back from that abyss? I mean, what's interesting is that for a while, and this was no one's fault really, but there, Eyes Wide Shut was kind of rumored for, I mean, the rumors about Eyes Wide Shut mm -hmm. was in production for so long. If you go on the internet, some of the rumors are like Tom Cruise is making a porn film. And then That's you right. saw the first the teaser trailer, which was really kind of like sexy, and you're like, wait a minute, like is this I mean Stanley Kubrick who made Lolita, who who, you know, is very provocative in his own way. He's not someone who I ever thought I would do something really sleazy, but like, you know, he's his own he's his own he was his own filmmaker and had these two big stars who were at, you know, very attractive and known for their being and I was like, maybe some people thought this was going to be an actual kind of like Maybe something close to what you're saying. And I do think that's one of the reasons why that movie was so quickly left theaters is because, you know, there was this trailer. There's this very sexy Time magazine cover where they're both naked on the cover, embracing each other. And it that probably felt like the closest you might get to that scenario you're, um, you're envisioning. I'm not sure if that ever would have happened only because it's just so hard to imagine, especially once Showgirls didn't do well. Um, it's just so hard to imagine any mainstream star kind of being kind of being into it. Um, but that is interesting. I mean, there, there is this very interesting kind of overlap between the quote unquote mainstream and the adult industry in the in the 90s and the early aughts. And just like, you know, people hanging out at like I remember there was an article in Spin about like porn star karaoke in Burbank. And oh, like yeah. Certain actors would show up and you had people like Charlie Sheen, who was you know seen as a respectable actor back in the 90s who would date adult film stars and. So there was some kind of like implied overlap between these worlds where, yes, I could totally see like, well, eventually it'll just really overlap and we'll get a movie that's kind of, you know, straddling, well, I don't use that term, but <laughs> straddling both these, these worlds. But I don't, I, you know, the funny thing is for this story, it's like, it, it's amazing to me, this genre really did, like 2002, it had four or five movies and then it kind of just completely, I mean, it didn't just trickle off. It was just like, that's it. We're done. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard for me, even the story, to figure out exactly why. But I think the main, I honestly think one of the big reasons is like, you know, internet porn. It's like the idea of like seeing naked famous movie stars was like, who cares? Like I have access to whatever I want on, you know, whatever circa 2002, you know, Lycos <laughs> or whatever, whatever we were using to find things back then. Right. And then, so we have this hard pivot off of that, that 
continues to the present day, as you note in the article. And I don't know that I'd really thought about this, but in my experience, it's true. Mainstream Hollywood movies have become strangely sexless. If you're talking about something that's made with big movie stars. Yeah. Part of that is that you're not going to see it in Marvel movies. And that's a lot of the movies that we get in theaters in general. But beyond that, why? I don't think that's a a debatable fact. I think that is where we are right now. It, we're always led to believe that uh, the society is getting more and more decadent and more and more open. And yet in that very conspicuous, very glaring way, it seems like we're moving in the opposite direction. Is that so? And if so, why do you believe that is so? Well, I mean, I don't know many people you talk to, but most people in America stopped having sex in 2014. There's been very few reported incidents. No, I mean, it's, like, <laughs> it's hilarious to me that like it's it's all over TV and it's, and it's still in indie movies. It's like this idea that sex has disappeared from movies is not true, but yes, mainstream movies. It's like, I mean, I just saw red rocket a couple of weeks ago, which is absolutely great. And you know, the, there's a scene where Simon Rex is just running down this, the street naked toward the camera. And he's just, there you go. It's like, that was not in a indie. Those are not in the indie movies I was seeing in the nineties or early. Aughts, I don't right? know. You, I know you don't get up to sunset much these days. You can often see Simon Rex running down sunset naked. <laughs> He is, I gotta say, he is so good in this movie. It is really, uh, I was, just one of those great performances. I wish he'd been nominated for an Oscar, and I don't care about the Oscars much. Um, But yeah, for some reason, like, TV is now, you have Euphoria, you have um, this new HBO show, The Minx, is that what it is? That's about Mm -hmm. this, and it's like, there's a a lot of full frontal nudity in that, a lot of male nudity. Um, But I don't know whether it's just because, as you said, the kind of movies that the studios want to make, like Marvel films or franchise films, are not the place for this. I don't know whether... You know, actors don't want to do this kind of stuff anymore on the big screen. Um, I, I I don't know whether it's just distasteful for people to even, you know, there's, there's a famous tweet like a couple of years ago that was just like, watching sex in movies is so embarrassing. It's cringe. And I was like, I get that. Like, I think for younger people, it's like, well, this is gross. Like, why do I have to, like, if you're going to watch this, if you're going to watch sex in a Hollywood movie, why not just watch it online? Like, why are you watching this? Like, it's almost as if they see it as like the, the, like the Pat Boone version of like Elvis where they're like, well, the real thing is available. Why would you want to watch this totally, you know, R rated vanilla version of it? Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. It's funny. It's like, I, I, there used to be a time when you would go to a movie and there'd be like a, a fairly big sex scene between two big stars and you all kind of squirm together, like looking around and it was kind of uncomfortable, but also kind of exciting. And I think people maybe don't want that. I think maybe for some people, they find that feeling maybe, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's very weird how much sex is on TV. Well, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the bad, the unnecessary sex scenes ruined the quote unquote necessary ones. Because if you're talking about, hey, let's just take a five minute break and cue a sax solo and watch Shannon Tweed dry hump yes. somebody, that is sort of cringeworthy. And I can see where there's far better alternatives in the culture. T- to me, what little I know about film language whether it's an action sequence or a sex sequence, you're supposed to also be furthering the story at the same time. And if sex is part of the adult human experience, then stories can advance at the same time as sex. And, and, And theoretically at times that would be the best possible way to advance a story if it's a romance for example because sex yeah. is often a, an element of romance and yet um i mean I'll, I'll wrap up with this question do you see an actual of course there's going to be one-offs there's so many freaking movies and everybody's trying to distinguish their their product will the time ever be ripe for the return i mean you know human breasts remain the least expensive special effect ever concocted 
Well, it, I mean, it, do I think the erotic thriller will come back? Here's, I think, uh, in one way, yes. I don't think the theatrical erotic thriller will come back. Right. I would be really agreed. Interested. Agreed. I bet. I think everyone would love to get Hulu's data on Deep Water because I think that movie is probably doing very well for them. It's certainly it got a lot of chatter in the various social social media circles that I sort of inhabit, um, and I think there is. I do think these movies are very custom custom made for streaming in the same way that like when i worked in a video store a lot of the erotic thrillers that came out were straight to video like new line making you know these Alyssa milano films or like poison ivy 2 and stuff like that like these there is a real kind of these are relatively affordable movies and i think people would like them but they probably just want to see them at home and they've got to be well done you know i interviewed a guy who did one for amazon prime called the voyeurs which is really well done and it's like like oh these are when these movies are done well they're fun and it I would have. I think it worked better as a streaming experience than if I'd seen it in the theater. It's just something about them now, like just like let's just watch this at home. Like we can, you know what I mean? It's, I, I don't know whether it's. I, I don't have any shame or prudence, but just like it just feels like a more at home experience. I think at this point. Yeah, as long as you've got a flat screen TV, there's no reason we need to be. We all can celebrate the communal uh, movie going experience until we're blue in the face. There's some kinds of movie experiences that are best experienced alone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know what it is? I went to see, you know, the funniest thing was I went to go see Bendetta, this this Paul Verhoeven, very racy nun movie. Yeah, right, yeah. And I went to, yeah, and I went to go see it because I'm insane. I went to, I love Paul Verhoeven, and I went to go see it the Friday it opened here in Burbank in this, like, tiny theater with eight seats. And I, I sat there, it was one o'clock, and I was like, it's me and the seven other perverts, I guess, who live here. Like, but the fun, because I just love Verhoeven and the movie is like very sexually charged, but it's also really smart. And he's still, he's still really got a lot of great skills. But what's so, so funny is that like an hour and 10 minutes in, someone walked out and I was like, how did you not know what you're, I mean, it's like, it's so rare that like anyone makes anything even at all kind of skeevy in 2022. And you took your Friday afternoon off to go see a Paul Verhoeven nun movie what did you, sir? I want to say, sir, sir. Excuse me. Stop. Stop the movie. Before, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You leaving what is are you more doing here, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. No, I know. I went and saw Paul Verhoeven speak at a screening of Starship Troopers in the last like five or six years. I'm, I'm right oh, there with you. God, but I'm envious. I would have loved that. I think. I think sometimes people choose choose movies based on what time they start and how well the air conditioning's working. I, that's that's very well that could very well be it yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations to both of us we've been talking about movies in hollywood for the better part of an hour without mentioning will smith or chris rock or jada pinkett smith so i feel good about that <laughs> i feel very good about that so i remind everybody the article it's easily uh easily tracked down for anyone listening to this on the ringer.com the rise and fall of the erotic thriller but we also touched on your book and i think people might want to give that a look as well thank you brian raftery Thanks, Mike. This is fun. I appreciate it.